Greetings and salutations. I'm Vlad Tenev, CEO and co-founder of Robinhood, and this is Under the Hood. I'm a true believer of mind, body, wealth. I think people get so caught up in, in investing and trading and making money. And I do believe to a certain degree, or not even to a certain degree, it's all mindset, right? If you don't have the mindset and the will to be able to do something, if your mind's not right, if your body's not right, if how you're eating's not right, your work-life balance isn't right, then none of these things will come to fruition. That's really breaking down what is your relationship with money, which I think is super important. It's essential to your relationships in general and how does that look like and establishing healthy habits. In this episode, We'll be speaking with Lauren Simmons, who at 22 made history when she became the youngest female trader on the New York Stock Exchange and the second ever black woman on the trading floor. Lauren's path to finance was a little unusual. She majored in genetics and minored in statistics, and she moved to New York City after college with no job prospects. After landing a job at Rosenblatt Securities, she shocked her colleagues by passing the difficult Series 19 equity trader exam on her first try. After two years, she left the trading floor and is now making a film about her ascent and working on a reality TV show called Going Public. Lauren and I spoke about her upbringing, how she made it to Wall Street, and how we can build a more inclusive financial system. So we hope you all enjoy it. Growing up in Georgia was amazing. I come from a single parent household, my mom, and I have a twin brother. So everything that I do today is really because of my brother. He has cerebral palsy and he is the most extrovert person that I know, wow. more so than me. He looks through life in the lens of if he can, he will, and he doesn't see his disability as a disability. And for me growing up, I definitely was very much in my head about a lot of things. I don't think I was necessarily an introvert, but I do think I just cared too much. And it wasn't until I went to college and was graduating college, and mind you, I was studying genetics because of my brother, and I really wanted to impact families the way that doctors had impacted mine growing up. And I thought we were at a point in technology where we would be able to alter DNA so that children wouldn't have genetic abnormalities. Moving forward, I decided New York and there was a moment for me where I felt like, obviously I'm a woman, obviously I'm African-American. And I think rightfully so, I should have concerns and there is validity about how far you can progress in your career and your life. But I always went back to my brother and felt that one, if he believed he can do it, then he will do it. But I knew if he was an able-bodied person, he would do it. And so for me, as an able-bodied person, I really didn't have any excuse to not do anything in this life. And that is how I ultimately navigated to New York. And everybody always asks the story of, how did you do it? The power of networking is your best friend. I'm sure you have stories to share as well and how powerful that can be. And ultimately, I landed the job at the New York Stock Exchange, not because, you know, I went to an Ivy League or I studied finance or any of those things. I was presented an opportunity and I said yes. And Richard Rosenblatt, part of Rosenblatt Securities, his whole thought process was 
this woman came from Georgia to New York of all places, landed at the New York Stock Exchange of all places. Who am I to tell her no? Like he felt that there was something bigger than him, bigger than me, that got me to exactly where I needed to be. I talk about this a lot, but I feel like life is very intentional. We may not understand all the pieces of the puzzles that are coming our way, but I do think life is intentional. You just have to to take it as it is and kind of move forward. Well, I'm just curious, what was your impression of trading before you got that job? Was trading something you were interested in before or what did you think of it? I didn't really have a thought. I mean, I was aware of the New York Stock Exchange. My mom, she had always, as far as personal finance, was always strict and I understood the importance of credit and budgeting and saving and and even, you know, long-term investments, but really more or less like a 529 savings account yeah. and saving for college. So I didn't have that much of a strong background of trading and investing and what goes into that. But I think you might find this interesting. A lot of the men on the trading floor don't invest in the market. And they don't because these are men that have now been on the floor for now going on three recessions. And they believe that you can't beat the game. So I'm coming into a world where trading is life and 95% of them don't even trade. They invest in like real estate and other things like that. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously Robinhood is a platform for investors and it's a tool. So, you know, the Robinhood philosophy is very much you can buy whatever stock or option or cryptocurrency you want subject to all of the suitability requirements and rules. And for those that want to actively trade, obviously we'll support that and we'll allow them to get into and out of positions as much as they want within the parameters of regulation. My personal philosophy has always been, I'm a buy and hold investor. The only times that I've gotten into trouble is when I've tried to like strategically sell something based on market timing. But my general philosophy is I like to buy stuff and hold it forever, right? Or until I actually have to sell it for some reason. And a lot of the tools that Robinhood has rolled out recently have kind of been these habitual long-term investing tools like recurring investments, which builds on top of our fractional shares product and allows you to say, I want to invest $5 in this particular stock or an ETF on a regular basis or dividend reinvestment, which is another sort of passive strategy where you can take dividends as they're coming in and recycle them into the stocks that are generating them. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the tools and education that we put out and that I'm personally all about are, are all towards turning first timers into long-term investors, understanding that the markets broadly are have performed very, very well. But if you're actually day trading individual stocks, the risk profile of that type of activity is very different. Well, my question is, seeing as that is your philosophy and you do have tools highlighting that, why do you think so many of the people that use your platform versus other platforms do day trade or are doing these risky short-term investments? Well, I think what it is, is if you look at the popular media, and I think, you know, I've gotten to understand this quite a bit over the past year, it's not exciting to talk about the people that are dollar cost averaging and 
investing in a diversified portfolio of ETFs. That story is not going to get written, even though 98% of our customers aren't day traders. So we've got 2%, which is a very, very small amount that are pattern day traders. And, you know, these are relatively small numbers. Most of the people engaging in the platform are actually buy and hold investors that are accumulating positions over time. But that narrative is not super interesting. So it's always going to be about the one or 2% that are out there systematically trading and generating a lot of transactions. It's not like they're all losing money, but a lot of that research that's been done in the past that says the more frequently you trade, the worse you do. A lot of that is because of trading commissions. You know, if you're factoring in a seven to $10 commission every time you trade, Obviously, that's going to take a really big hit on your returns. So I think the research does need to be repeated. And at least we have to recognize that the environment's a little bit different. With commission-free investing, I think that some of the conclusions that people people draw on to say that the more you invest, the worse you do, have to be re-examined from a new lens. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand what you're saying as far as like the narrative and essentially it not being as sexy to talk about diversified portfolios and and holding long. But we are definitely still in a world where Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC, they do well and they do highlight long term investments and people not moving so quickly in and out of it. And I know like you're not a media platform, but do you think that there is a world where that narrative could be changed. I know that the media has definitely come down on you and I can only imagine what that's like, but I do feel like there could be a space where you could, and I'm not saying you be the next media platform, but but you could change that and highlight that. Yeah, I've read a little bit that you have some thoughts on this. One quote that I pulled that you said is, apps such as Robinhood really tried to target millennials without giving them the tools and resources so that they can make educated decisions. They use really predatory practices. So I'd love to know a little bit more about what you mean and how we can kind of be better at supporting our customers. Yeah, I mean, I think content is everything, right? And while Bloomberg, CMC, all these places have established themselves and obviously they're not brokerage accounts, but they do have an older demographic. They do have a demographic that people do watch. I know that the younger generation is very much leaning into learning all things investing. And anybody that listens to this, we're talking about investing long term. We're not talking about day trading. And so you've had like Robinhood snacks, which I think has been okay, if I'm being honest. But I, I think there could be more content and more accessibility and resources that is fun that is cool that is exciting to empower and have the next generation be better at it i mean you are robin hood so you have taken control of that demographic you have their attention that is your audience now it's figuring out a way to marry the two and kind of build upon that well, what do you think? Uh, it sounds like you've been thinking a lot about this. What do you think would resonate? What do you think is missing out there that could really engage and educate these young people in a positive way? 
Well, I think podcasts are obviously great and maybe short podcasts, little tidbits are great, but obviously they love seeing videos like that's how they grow. And so, yeah, definitely utilizing like social media, TikTok, Instagram, and just having that short content that's fun. But it's not just fun because I, I feel like I'm seeing a lot of short form content that's out there. It is fun to a certain degree, but I don't think they're educating. And we can have a whole sidebar conversation, kind of what I think about financial influencers. And I think what I do, and even what you do, is different from the world of a financial influencer, because many of them typically don't have that background in finance. They haven't been in it. And some of the language gets watered and I don't know. And because I did two years on the floor and I was actually in it, you have to be smart about it. And I think if you're going to capitalize on, again, this audience, they really should be empowered. And we're making sure that we're putting out good content. What was it like on the floor? Can you describe that a little bit? You know, I've seen trading places and there's all these movies where people are just like in a pit handing these paper tickets my experiences going to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange is now it's more of a media platform. Like you have CNBC that's broadcasting out of there. It didn't seem that it was anything like what I'd seen in movies. You're correct. You're right on the money. I think trading has definitely become electronic, passive. So our busiest times today is the open and the close, um, especially if we have an IPO. I think it's a horse and pony show. Not to diminish anything that the New York Stock Exchange is doing, but you have to realize that the New York Stock Exchange is the only uh, place that still has human traders. And a lot of the day, the middle chunk of the day is really passive and we're really not doing anything that high energy that you see in like wolf of wall street and these other movies you'll get that in the open the close but that's max 10 minutes throughout the day so my experience i came in and i realized okay this is a great foundation for me to learn right and for me to progress my career from here this is a great foundation but what i'd say on the trading floor no which is why you see a lot of young traders that come onto the floor they'll stay on average two years and then they'll go and do something else in finance or they'll do a complete career change i also think outside of the technology fastly growing and the positions slowly not becoming as useful there's also a diversity problem at the new york stock Obviously, like I just became the second African-American woman in the exchanges 225 years. So I think for my generation, when we're talking about younger millennials and Gen Zers, and when they lean into companies and who they want to follow, that is a big thing. And if companies are not doing that, you're completely going to be outcast. And I think a lot of the big players, not just the New York Stock Exchange, but Wall Street will be a thing of the past. I mean, obviously, these are large institutions. They have a lot of money and capital. But I think going forward, my generation is 100 percent going to lean into that. And it's important that we're having these conversations and it's not just hot topic words. And I think for a place like the New York Stock Exchange, they're not looking to diversify the people on the floor which you know is interesting and they're also very hesitant about new ideas i mean even just thinking about when spotify wanted to do a direct listing you know the men on the floor were not happy with that whatsoever but this is what we're moving towards 
And if you don't want to be part of these conversations or you don't want to allow these things to happen, they're going to happen either way. Yeah. So, I mean, one way to look at it is the trading floor, you know, needs to get more diverse. There needs to be more diversity. But I'm kind of thinking in the back of my head, does the trading floor need to exist? Is where it's going that everyone's kind of on a level playing field, plugging into these markets electronically. And of course, you'll have your algorithmic traders that are operating in the data centers. But is the internet just going to turn into a virtual trading floor to some degree where it doesn't matter what your background is or where you grew up, you can kind of be plugged into this community of traders on a level playing field. What are your thoughts on that? Or do you think that the trading floor is always going to exist and be an important part of price discovery and making markets and all these things? I think from a historical standpoint, the trading floor will always be around. So I think there will always be people on the floor. But I do think as far as like having DMM specialists and what they can do for you, I do think they can be utilized. Had you asked me this January of last year, but since we've now been in a pandemic and the floor did shut down for a couple of months and no one was on the floor, not equity traders, not options, not DMM specialists. Yeah. And so what I was always told when I was down there was there was very much a value add of having a DMM specialist and especially being on the floor and being able to talk directly with them to see where the price of the stock would open and close and how to position yourself accordingly. And I was told that you could yeah. only do that on the trading floor. Seeing as how the trading floor did shut down, how were those conversations still happening? Yeah, that's a good point. Nobody really noticed the difference, right? <laughs> right. Ugh, the men on the floor are going to hate me for that, for saying that. But I mean, that's the truth and that's the reality. And that's kind of where we're going. As far as everyone being a trader, I mean, we still have a long way to go, right? Because if we just think about an IPO, which I think that is where you really get your growth and really where you can really close the wealth gap. And that is really the starting conversation people should be having. Do you mean in uh, getting people access to IPOs as investors? Yes, getting people access. I love reggae and we'll dive into going public my new TV series. But for the most part, you do have to be an institutional investor. So if you're still not in the room having these conversations or having that net worth to be able to, to participate in a pre-IPO, then they're still going to be essentially the haves and the have nots. So leaving the floor, it sounds like your big mission now is how to educate young people to invest in and take charge of their finances. Is that kind of an accurate framing of it? Yes, but I, I do it from um, a holistic standpoint in the sense of I'm a true believer of mind, body, wealth. I think for me, people get so caught up in, in investing and trading and making money. And I do believe to a certain degree, or not even to a certain degree, it's all mindset, right? If, if you don't have the mindset and the will to be able to do something, if your mind's not right, if you, your body's not right, if how you're eating's not right, your work-life balance isn't right, then none of these things will come to fruition. So I am very strategic on not just giving tips and tricks on how to invest or how to be better in your personal finance. It's really breaking down what is your relationship with money, which I think is super important. It's essential to your relationships in general and how does that look like? 
and establishing healthy habits. So for me, if we can break those down and really look at it, I think people will feel better, will feel more empowered to invest, invest smartly, not just invest because someone online is saying to, and not to get kind of caught up in the FOMO that goes on. So I think I'm a lot different because I do think if you listen to a lot of the advice that's out there, and I don't mean to roll my eyes, it's okay advice. I think people get so concentrated on the money component and there's just so much more to life than that. Are you saying that before you even start investing, you should make sure that some of the other things in your life are taken care of? Absolutely. What in particular, like, what do you think needs to be true before I should even think about buying my first stock, for example? Well, I think Warren Buffett, like I listen to him a lot, but a lot of the advice that he gives is don't trade with emotion. If you have emotion in it, then you're immediately doing it wrong. And so I think for a lot of people, especially during this pandemic, and they're looking into investing and trading, they're using it as a resource to be able to find the unicorn stock and become wealthy overnight, unfortunately, right? Even the long-term investors. So we really need to break down getting you into a healthy space, again, on what your relationship is with money. I tell people I meditate. I've been meditating for seven years. I read a lot of books. Even while I was on the floor and as it relates to trading, I didn't trade until I um, left the trading floor. Really? Yeah, and there were many stocks that I definitely could have traded in and it made sense. But for me, it was a couple of things like having enough money to actually trade. And yes, you could trade at any point, but your finances should be in place before you're trading. So if you have student loan debt, if you have credit card debt, if you have any of those things, you don't have a savings account, you don't have an emergency fund. I mean, this pandemic has really shown and has impacted a lot of people. So the old advice of having three months in a savings account, it's just not gonna work. If you don't have those things, investing should not be it. Another thing to realize when it comes to investing and trading is that a lot of people can have very addictive personalities and they're using it for all the wrong reasons. So really getting your mental health in a good place, I think is a is the foundation and then we can start having conversations about trading and investing and going from there instead of just oh if you have five dollars this is what you should do with your money and i know people don't love that i don't really care <laughs> yeah. i think it's the smartest thing to do and i've been asked oh is there ever a stock that you missed out on well no i mean when amazon went public i think i was like still five so you know what i mean like whatever is meant for you will be for you there will be other stocks out there tesla amazon the fang stocks they're not the only stocks that are gonna make moves and i think if people realize that they'll be just fine but i, I do think there's a lot of especially right now in the market and the pandemic and all this speculation that people have this fear if they don't get in now then they've missed their opportunity and it doesn't work like that so I'm gathering that you mentioned you traded a little bit after you left Rosenblatt Securities. What kind of strategies were you using? Were you basically long-term buy and hold or did you do more speculative things as well? Not speculative. I'm way too conservative. Everything was long-term buy and hold. I put it in. I do have a few friends that are wealth managers. So I knew... <laughs> to take my money out March of last year, 
But then I went back in when we had the dip and I honestly have not really looked at my portfolio since. I mean, at this point, I'm pretty sure that there will be another crash and that is what it is, but I'm holding on and I'll be long until, until whatever. I mean, I'll probably check it again. I mean, you should, but yeah, I think people get too caught up on a lot of things. And so when they have questions for me, I'm like, I don't even check that often. Yeah. Tell me a little bit. So you're probably aware of the stats. Not very many people are investing, right? It's something like 50%, 47% of US households in America right now. Do you think that that number should be higher? One thing that I, you know, I'm pretty passionate about, and of course, that probably wouldn't surprise you given my position in Robinhood, but I think 95 plus percent of Americans should be investing and it should be as ubiquitous as spending. So in the same way that it's easy and frictionless to buy something on Amazon, that behavior should be just as frictionless for investing. What do you think about that? Do you share that viewpoint or do you think that, hey, you know, not for everyone, 50% is kind of feels right? I think that number should be higher, but I do think that number correlates to just personal finance here in America in general. We actually rank, I'm pretty sure I could be wrong, 22nd nationally when it comes to personal finance. We're actually right behind Botswana in our financial literacy. And so why we don't see that number as high is one, because people are not really too familiar with personal finances overall but alone investing, it's always been a space where especially minorities and women have always felt left out. Again, the information isn't as easily digestible. It's not relatable. But what we know is, especially when it comes to women, they actually are the better investors. So I do think we could get to that point. I do think people should be investing. And if you're not investing, you're not investing not because you're scared or afraid or because you don't have the education behind it, but because you really sat down kind of like the men on the floor to say, mm, I'm not going to invest in the market, but here are my reasons why. But you should be investing. You should be growing your money somewhere, whatever that looks like, whether, again, that's real estate or anything, which is why we kind of really talked about crypto and and my thoughts around that. And I say if it makes sense to you and you're doing a healthy percentage of your portfolio. Nothing crazy. I've heard horror stories of people investing 95% in their portfolio, which is insane. It has to feel right for you. It has to feel good. One of the things that I learned on the trading floor is that we would make decisions in microseconds. And whatever decision we made, we had to be accountable. We had to commit and we had to be fully committed to our decision regardless. So I think it's the same mindset when it comes to investing, it's not always going to work out. There shouldn't be any emotion behind it. And if you can get to that place, then I think you'll be just fine. But I think one of the reasons, again, there are numerous amount of reasons on why that number isn't higher. But one, we also aren't talking about it in our educational system. We should be knowing how to invest playing with stocks at an early age. So by the time we get to 18, we are fully positioned to be able to, if we are in a place to do so, to be able to go in and invest. I agree. I think more should be done about that. Okay. Tell me about going public. You're working on this new reality TV show. What's it all about? 
Going public, I'm so excited. We are following five founders through the power of storytelling as they get listed at the NASDAQ in real time. And through the show, our viewers will be able to participate in the IPO. And all this is being done through Reg A, uh, which was signed into law by the Obama administration. So we're looking at small cap firms. I think as the series goes on, we'll be looking at different firms going forward. But again, it speaks to everything that I do. Everything that I do is an extension of Lauren and like, how do we democratize IPOs? How do we democratize the space and really give people a seat at the table? And I think you probably know as well that following a company's storytelling, their story is everything. And if you can have people who are using your product, people using the Robinhood app, and turn those people into investors and to be able to innovate and grow your company, you're absolutely limitless. And so I'm so excited to be part of a show that really hones in into diversity. All five companies that we have are diverse. It's not the typical Wall Street, white, older men. We have women, we have minorities, we have retail, we have science, we have all different sectors and I love what we're doing. We were just out in Miami this past week and it's been so great to see. And I'm excited that this gets to be on TV, entrepreneur.com, Apple TV, Roku, so on and so forth. People love seeing things through and through the power of, of TV. So I think this is completely a groundbreaking show, which I'm so excited to be part of. So anyone that watches the show will have access to the information that they need to be eligible for participating in the IPOs of these companies that you're tracking? Yep. Anybody over the age of 18? Yes. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited to see how that plays out. I think it's going to be very cool. Thank you. I do want to get your thoughts on advice for other women and people of color looking to enter industries that have been historically dominated by white men. What do you tell people that are looking to do the same thing themselves? How can we see more women, more people of color in some of these industries? Well, the first thing is getting out of your head. I spoke on this earlier, like, yes, I'm a woman, I'm African-American. I could walk through life saying that, which I am those things, but at the end of the day, I'm Lauren Simmons. And Lauren Simmons encompasses being Southern, being woman, being charming, being all these things. And I use that as my superpower. I don't use that as, okay, these are all the reasons why I can't. And it goes back, I've kind of talked about this a lot, about the psychology that is going on in your headspace. And so for me, I tell women, they're like, how is it being the only woman on the trading floor? Or how is it working in a male-dominated space? I don't even think about being a woman in these rooms. If I did that, I would not get anywhere. So I think the first thing is having that conversation with yourself, realizing the value add that you have, and also realizing that if a company doesn't see that value add, you have just as much power to say, you know what, this isn't the company for me, let me go somewhere else. I tell people own their power, own who you are, like don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Yes, you are gonna have some great people. Yes, you're gonna have some not so great people. But the not so great people, you're not married to them. You don't have to work with them. If they don't get it, they don't get the vision. It is what it is. So really being comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, that's the key to everything, but that's easier said than done. Yeah. And you definitely have to have people around you who are champion 
for your success and if you can have that you'll be just fine and even if you don't have that because it takes a little trial and error and getting to that point you have to do the self-work and if you're not doing it no one else is going to do it for you i always say if you're not a cheerleader for yourself why do you expect other people to be a cheerleader for you it's just not going to work out that way and vlad i mean being like a white man, I'm sure you have your insecurities too, right? Oh yeah, plenty of them. That hopefully that's never stopped you from doing anything that you've done today. Yeah, I found people were generally very encouraging of what I was doing up until this year. And this year I've had a lot more haters. So that's been interesting for me. It makes you stronger and you just have to power through it. So I wouldn't trade that experience for anything in the world. Okay, last question for you, last softball. What does democratizing finance for all mean to you? Everyone gets a seat at the table. Everyone. I want to see it. We're there. We should have been there a long time ago. And so for me, it's not just about even going public. It's not about having people participate in IPO or democratizing trading and giving everyone accessibility and tool to do so. It really is about... I really lean into ESG investing and what are we doing beyond that? So we've been talking a lot today about empowering and educating, but what else are we doing? Are we developing talent? Is our board a reflection of what it is that we're presenting to the world? Are we giving back to communities? If all those things align, I think we are in a great place in democratizing this space. Otherwise, we're just making some noise. We're doing some nice things, I guess. And we're really not about empowering the next generation. Yeah, this was a very fun interview. I'll be looking forward to uh, watching Going Public. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. And thank you so much uh, for the talk today. Likewise. This has been an episode of Under the Hood. Under the Hood is produced by Sound Made Public. Original music by Eric Zeeler and Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Under the Hood on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be well. The opinions expressed are those of the guest speaker and not necessarily those of Robinhood or its affiliates. The podcast is provided for informational purposes and not a recommendation of any security or investment strategy. All investments involve risk and loss of principle is possible. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. IPOs entail additional risks, are speculative investments, and not appropriate for all investors. Robinhood is not affiliated with the guests or their companies. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker-dealer. Robinhood Securities LLC member SIPC provides brokerage clearing services. Robinhood Crypto LLC provides cryptocurrency trading. All are subsidiaries of Robinhood Markets, Inc., which is also the distributor of this podcast.